Part three of History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume Four, by Friedrich Schiller. Part three. The victory of Steinau was followed by the capture of Leibniz, Großglogau and even of Frankfurt on the Oder. Schafgotsch, who remained in Silesia to complete the subjugation of that province, blockaded Brieg and threatened Breslau, though in vain, as that free town was jealous of its privileges and devoted to the Swedes. Colonels Elo and Goetz were ordered by Wallenstein to the Warta to push forwards into Pomerania and to the coasts of the Baltic, and actually obtained possession of Landsberg, the key of Pomerania. While thus the Elector of Brandenburg and the Duke of Pomerania were made to tremble for their dominions, Wallenstein himself, with the remainder of his army, burst suddenly into Lusatia, where he took Gurlitz by storm, and forced Bautzen to surrender. But his object was merely to alarm the Elector of Saxony, not to follow up the advantages already obtained, and therefore, even with the sword in his hand, he continued his negotiations for peace with Brandenburg and Saxony, but with no better success than before, as the inconsistencies of his conduct had destroyed all confidence in his sincerity. He was therefore on the point of turning his whole force in earnest against the unfortunate Saxons, and effecting his object by force of arms, when circumstances compelled him to leave these territories. The conquests of Duke Bernard upon the Danube, which threatened Austria itself with immediate danger, urgently demanded his presence in Bavaria, and the expulsion of the Saxons and Swedes from Silesia deprived him of every pretext for longer resisting the imperial orders, and leaving the elector of Bavaria without assistance. With his main body, therefore, he immediately set out for the upper Palatinate, and his retreat freed Upper Saxony forever of this formidable enemy. So long as was possible, he had delayed to move to the rescue of Bavaria, and on every pretext evaded the commands of the emperor. He had indeed, after reiterated remonstrances, dispatched from Bohemia a reinforcement of some regiments to Count Altringer, who was defending the Lech and the Danube against Horn and Bernard, but under the express condition of his acting merely on the defensive. He referred the emperor and the elector, whenever they applied to him for aid, to Altringer, who, as he publicly gave out, had received unlimited powers. Secretly, however, he tied up his hands by the strictest injunctions, and even threatened him with death if he exceeded his orders. When Duke Bernard had appeared before Ratisbon, and the emperor as well as the elector repeated still more urgently their demand for succour, he pretended he was about to dispatch General Galas with a considerable army to the Danube. But this movement also was delayed, and Ratisbon, Straubing, and Sham, as well as the bishopric of Eichstätt, fell into the hands of the Swedes. When at last he could no longer neglect the orders of the court, he marched slowly towards the Bavarian frontier, where he invested the town of Sham, which had been taken by the Swedes. But no sooner did he learn that on the Swedish side a diversion was contemplated by an inroad of the Saxons into Bohemia, than he availed himself of the report as a pretext for immediately retreating into that kingdom. Every consideration, he urged, must be postponed, 
to the defence and preservation of the hereditary dominions of the emperor and on this plea he remained firmly fixed in bohemia which he guarded as if it had been his own property and when the emperor laid upon him his commands to move towards the danube and prevent the duke of weimar from establishing himself in so dangerous a position on the frontiers of austria wallenstein thought proper to conclude the campaign a second time and quartered his troops for the winter in this exhausted kingdom such continued insolence and unexampled contempt of the imperial orders as well as obvious neglect of the common cause joined to his equivocal behaviour towards the enemy tended at last to convince the emperor of the truth of those unfavourable reports with regard to the duke which were current through germany the latter had for a long time succeeded in glozing over his criminal correspondence with the enemy and persuading the emperor still prepossessed in his favour that the sole object of his secret conferences was to obtain peace for germany but impenetrable as he himself believed his proceedings to be in the course of his conduct enough transpired to justify the insinuations with which his rivals incessantly loaded the ear of the emperor in order to satisfy himself of the truth or falsehood of these rumours ferdinand had already at different times sent spies into wallenstein's camp but as the duke took the precaution never to commit anything to writing they returned with nothing but conjectures but when at last those ministers who formerly had been his champions at the court in consequence of their estates not being exempted by wallenstein from the general exactions joined his enemies when the elector of bavaria threatened in case of wallenstein being any longer retained in the supreme command to unite with the swedes when the spanish ambassador insisted on his dismissal and threatened in case of refusal to withdraw the subsidies furnished by his crown the emperor found himself a second time compelled to deprive him of the command the emperor's authoritative and direct interference with the army soon convinced the duke that the compact with himself was regarded as at an end and that his dismissal was inevitable one of his inferior generals in austria whom he had forbidden under pain of death to obey the orders of the court received the positive commands of the emperor to join the elector of bavaria and wallenstein himself was imperiously ordered to send some regiments to reinforce the army of the cardinal infante who was on his march from italy all these measures convinced him that the plan was finally arranged to disarm him by degrees and at once when he was weak and defenceless to complete his ruin in self-defence must he now hasten to carry into execution the plans which he had originally formed only with the view to aggrandizement he had delayed too long either because the favourable configuration of the stars had not yet presented itself or as he used to say to check the impatience of his friends because the time was not yet come the time even now was not come but the pressure of circumstances no longer allowed him to await the favour of the stars the first step was to assure himself of the sentiments of his principal officers and then to try the attachment of the army which he had so long confidently reckoned on three of them colonels kinsky tertsky and Ilo, had long been in his secrets and the two first were further united to his interests by the ties of relationship the same wild ambition the same bitter hatred of the government and the hope of enormous rewards bound them in the closest manner to wallenstein who to increase the number of his adherents could stoop to the lowest means he had once advised colonel Ilo 
to solicit in Vienna the title of Count, and had promised to back his application with his powerful mediation, but he secretly wrote to the ministry advising them to refuse his request, as to grant it would give rise to similar demands from others, whose services and claims were equal to his. On Elo's return to the camp, Wallenstein immediately demanded to know the success of his mission, and when informed by Elo of its failure, he broke out in the bitterest complaints against the court. Thus said he, are our faithful services rewarded. My recommendation is disregarded, and your merit denied so trifling a reward. Who would any longer devote his services to so ungrateful a master? No, for my part, I am henceforth the determined foe of Austria. Elo agreed with him, and a close alliance was cemented between them. But what was known to these three confidants of the duke was long an impenetrable secret to the rest, and the confidence with which Wallenstein spoke of the devotion of his officers was founded merely on the favours he had lavished on them, and on their known dissatisfaction with the court. But this vague presumption must be converted into certainty before he could venture to lay aside the mask or take any open step against the emperor. Count Piccolomini, who had distinguished himself by his unparalleled bravery at Lutzen, was the first whose infidelity he put to the proof. He had, he thought, gained the attachment of this general by large presents, and preferred him to all others, because born under the same constellations with himself. He disclosed to him that, in consequence of the emperor's ingratitude and the near approach of his own danger, he had irrevocably determined entirely to abandon the party of Austria to join the enemy with the best part of his army, and to make war upon the house of Austria, on all sides of its dominions, till he had wholly extirpated it. In the execution of this plan, he principally reckoned on the services of Piccolomini, and had beforehand promised him the greatest rewards. When the latter, to conceal his amazement at this extraordinary communication, spoke of the dangers and obstacles which would oppose so hazardous an enterprise, Wallenstein ridiculed his fears, in such enterprises, he maintained, nothing was difficult but the commencement. The stars were propitious to him, the opportunity the best that could be wished for, and something must always be trusted to fortune. His resolution was taken, and if it could not be otherwise, he would encounter the hazard at the head of a thousand horse. Piccolomini was careful not to excite Wallenstein's suspicions by longer opposition, and yielded apparently to the force of his reasoning. Such was the infatuation of the duke, that notwithstanding the warnings of Count Tertsky, he never doubted the sincerity of this man, who lost not a moment in communicating to the court at Vienna this important conversation. Preparatory to taking the last decisive step, he, in January 1634, called a meeting of all the commanders of the army at Pilsen, whither he had marched after his retreat from Bavaria. The emperor's recent orders to spare his hereditary dominions from winter quarterings, to recover Ratisbon in the middle of winter, and to reduce the army by a detachment of six thousand horse to the Cardinal Infante, were matters sufficiently grave to be laid before a council of war, and this plausible pretext served to conceal from the curious the real object of the meeting. Sweden and Saxony received invitations to be present, in order to treat with the Duke of Friedland for a peace. To the leaders of more distant armies, written communications were made. Of the commanders thus summoned, twenty appeared. But three most influential, Galas, Coloredo, and Altringer, were absent. The duke reiterated his summons to them, 
and in the meantime, in expectation of their speedy arrival, proceeded to execute his designs. It was no light task that he had to perform. A nobleman, proud, brave, and jealous of his honour, was to declare himself capable of the basest treachery, in the very presence of those who had been accustomed to regard him as the representative of majesty, the judge of their actions, and the supporter of their laws, and to show himself suddenly as a traitor, a cheat, and a rebel. It was no easy task either to shake to its foundations a legitimate sovereignty, strengthened by time and consecrated by laws and religion, to dissolve all the charms of the senses and the imagination, those formidable guardians of an established throne, and to attempt forcibly to uproot those invincible feelings of duty which plead so loudly and so powerfully in the breast of the subject in favour of his sovereign. But, blinded by the splendour of a crown, Wallenstein observed not the precipice that yawned beneath his feet, and in full reliance on his own strength, the common case with energetic and daring minds, he stopped not to consider the magnitude and the number of the difficulties that opposed him. Wallenstein saw nothing but an army, partly indifferent and partly exasperated against the court, accustomed with a blind submission to do homage to his great name, to bow to him as their legislator and judge, and with trembling reverence to follow his orders as the decrees of fate. In the extravagant flatteries which were paid to his omnipotence, in the bold abuse of the court government, in which a lawless soldiery indulged, and which the wild license of the camp excused, he thought he read the sentiments of the army, and the boldness with which they were ready to censure the monarch's measures passed with him for a readiness to renounce their allegiance to a sovereign so little respected. But that which he had regarded as the lightest matter proved the most formidable obstacle with which he had to contend. The soldier's feelings of allegiance were the rock on which his hopes were wrecked. Deceived by the profound respect in which he was held by these lawless bands, he ascribed the whole to his own personal greatness, without distinguishing how much he owed to himself and how much to the dignity with which he was invested. All trembled before him, while he exercised a legitimate authority, while obedience to him was a duty, and while his consequence was supported by the majesty of the sovereign. Greatness, in and of itself, may excite terror and admiration, but legitimate greatness alone can inspire reverence and submission, and of this decisive advantage he deprived himself the instant he avowed himself a traitor. Field Marshal Illo undertook to learn the sentiments of the officers, and to prepare them for the step which was expected of them. He began by laying before them the new orders of the court to the general and the army, and by the obnoxious turn he skilfully gave to them, he found it easy to excite the indignation of the assembly. After this well-chosen introduction, he expatiated with much eloquence upon the merits of the army and the general, and the ingratitude with which the emperor was accustomed to requite them. Spanish influence, he maintained, governed the court. The ministry were in the pay of Spain. The Duke of Friedland alone had hitherto opposed this tyranny, and had thus drawn down upon himself the deadly enmity of the Spaniards. To remove him from the command, or to make away with him entirely, he continued, had long been the end of their desires, and until they could succeed in one or other, they endeavoured to abridge his power in the field. The command was to be placed in the hands of the King of Hungary, for no other reason than the better to promote the Spanish power in Germany, because this prince, as the ready instrument of foreign councils, 
might be led at pleasure. It was merely with a view of weakening the army that the six thousand troops were required for the Cardinal Infante. It was solely for the purpose of harassing it by a winter campaign that they were now called on in this inhospitable season to undertake the recovery of Ratisbon. The means of subsistence were everywhere rendered difficult, while the Jesuits and the ministry enriched themselves with the sweat of the provinces, and squandered the money intended for the pay of the troops. The general, abandoned by the court, acknowledges his inability to keep his engagements to the army, for all the services which, for two and twenty years, he had rendered the house of Austria, for all the difficulties with which he had struggled, for all the treasures of his own which he had expended on the imperial service, a second disgraceful dismissal awaited him. But he was resolved the matter should not come to this. He was determined voluntarily to resign the command, before it should be wrested from his hands. And this, continued the orator, is what, through me, he now makes known to his officers. It was now for them to say whether it would be advisable to lose such a general. Let each consider who was to refund him the sums he had expended in the emperor's service, and where he was now to reap the reward of their bravery, when he who was their evidence removed from the scene. A universal cry that they would not allow their general to be taken from them interrupted the speaker. Four of the principal officers were deputed to lay before him the wish of the assembly, and earnestly to request that he would not leave the army. The duke made a show of resistance, and only yielded after the second deputation. This concession on his side seemed to demand a return on theirs. As he engaged not to quit the service without the knowledge and consent of the generals, he required of them, on the other hand, a written promise to truly and firmly adhere to him, neither to separate nor to allow themselves to be separated from him, and to shed their last drop of blood in his defence. Whoever should break this covenant was to be regarded as a perfidious traitor, and treated by the rest as a common enemy. The express condition which was added, as long as Wallenstein shall employ the army in the emperor's service, seemed to exclude all misconception, and none of the assembled generals hesitated at once to accede to a demand apparently so innocent and so reasonable. This document was publicly read before an entertainment, which Field Marshal Illo had expressly prepared for the purpose. It was to be signed after they rose from table. The host did his utmost to stupefy his guests by strong potations, and it was not until he saw them affected with the wine that he produced the paper for signature. Most of them wrote their names without knowing what they were subscribing. A few only, more curious and more distrustful, read the paper over again, and discovered with astonishment that the clause as long as Wallenstein shall employ the army for the emperor's service, was omitted. Illo had, in fact, artfully contrived to substitute for the first another copy in which these words were wanting. The trick was manifest, and many refused now to sign. Piccolomini, who had seen through the whole cheat, and had been present at this scene merely with the view of giving information of the whole to the court, forgot himself so far in his cups as to drink the emperor's health. But Count Tertsky now rose and declared that all were perjured villains who should recede from their engagement. His menaces, the idea of the inevitable danger to which they who resisted any longer would be exposed, the example of the rest, and Illo's rhetoric, at last overcame their scruples, and the paper was signed by all without exception. Wallenstein had now effected his purpose, but the unexpected resistance he had met with from the commanders 
roused him at last from the fond illusions in which he had hitherto indulged. Besides, most of the names were scrawled so illegibly that some deceit was evidently intended. But instead of being recalled to his discretion by this warning, he gave vent to his injured pride in undignified complaints and reproaches. He assembled the generals the next day, and undertook personally to confirm the whole tenor of the agreement which Elo had submitted to them the day before. After pouring out the bitterest reproaches and abuse against the court, he reminded them of their opposition to the proposition of the previous day, and declared that this circumstance had induced him to retract his own promise. The generals withdrew in silence and confusion, but after a short consultation in the antechamber, they returned to apologize for their late conduct, and offered to sign the paper anew. Nothing now remained but to obtain a similar assurance from the absent generals, or, on their refusal, to seize their persons. Wallenstein renewed his invitation to them, and earnestly urged them to hasten their arrival. But a rumour of the doings at Pilsen reached them on their journey, and suddenly stopped their further progress. Altringer, on pretence of sickness, remained in the strong fortress of Frauenberg. Galas made his appearance, but merely with the design of better qualifying himself as an eyewitness, to keep the emperor informed of all Wallenstein's proceedings. The intelligence which he and Piccolomini gave at once converted the suspicions of the court into an alarming certainty. Similar disclosures, which were at the same time made from other quarters, left no room for farther doubt, and the sudden change of the commanders in Austria and Silesia appeared to be the prelude to some important enterprise. The danger was pressing, and the remedy must be speedy, but the court was unwilling to proceed at once to the execution of the sentence till the regular forms of justice were complied with. Secret instructions were therefore issued to the principal officers, on whose fidelity reliance could be placed, to seize the persons of the Duke of Friedland and of his two associates, Elo and Tertsky, and keep them in close confinement till they should have an opportunity of being heard and of answering for their conduct. But if this could not be accomplished quietly, the public danger required that they should be taken dead or live at the same time, General Galas received a patent commission, by which these orders of the emperor were made known to the colonels and officers, and the army was released from its obedience to the traitor, and placed under Lieutenant General Galas, till a new generalissimo could be appointed. In order to bring back the seduced and deluded to their duty, and not to drive the guilty to despair, a general amnesty was proclaimed, in regard to all offences against the imperial majesty, committed at Pilsen. General Galas was not pleased with the honour which was done him. He was at Pilsen, under the eye of the person whose fate he was to dispose of, in the power of an enemy, who had a hundred eyes to watch his motions. If Wallenstein once discovered the secret of his commission, nothing could save him from the effects of his vengeance and despair. But if it was thus dangerous to be the secret depository of such a commission, how much more so to execute it? The sentiments of the generals were uncertain, and it was at least doubtful whether, after the step they had taken, they would be ready to trust the emperor's promises, and at once to abandon the brilliant expectations they had built upon Wallenstein's enterprise. It was also hazardous to attempt to lay hands on the person of a man who, till now, had been considered inviolable, who from long exercise of supreme power, and from habitual obedience, had become the object of deepest respect who was invested with every attribute of outward majesty and inward greatness, 
whose very aspect inspired terror, and who by a nod disposed of life and death. To see such a man, like a common criminal, in the midst of the guards by whom he was surrounded, and in a city apparently devoted to him, to convert the object of this deep and habitual veneration into a subject of compassion or of contempt, was a commission calculated to make even the boldest hesitate. So deeply was fear and veneration for their general engraven in the breasts of the soldiers, that even the atrocious crime of high treason could not wholly eradicate these sentiments. Galas perceived the impossibility of executing his commission under the eyes of the duke, and his most anxious wish was, before venturing on any steps, to have an interview with Altringer. As the long absence of the latter had already begun to excite the duke's suspicions, Galas offered to repair in person to Frauenberg, and to prevail on Altringer, his relation, to return with him. Wallenstein was so pleased with this proof of his zeal, that he even lent him his own equipage for the journey. Rejoicing at the success of his stratagem, he left Pilsen without delay, leaving to Count Piccolomini the task of watching Wallenstein's further movements. He did not fail, as he went along, to make use of the imperial patent, and the sentiments of the troops proved more favourable than he had expected. Instead of taking back his friend to Pilsen, he dispatched him to Vienna to warn the emperor against the intended attack while he himself repaired to Upper Austria, of which the safety was threatened by the near approach of Duke Bernard. In Bohemia, the towns of Budweis and Tabor were again garrisoned for the emperor, and every precaution taken to oppose with energy the designs of the traitor. As Galas did not appear disposed to return, Piccolomini determined to put Wallenstein's credulity once more to the test. He begged to be sent to bring back Galas, and Wallenstein suffered himself a second time to be overreached. This inconceivable blindness can only be accounted for as the result of his pride, which never retracted the opinion it had once formed of any person, and would not acknowledge even to itself the possibility of being deceived. He conveyed Count Piccolomini in his own carriage to Linz, where the latter immediately followed the example of Galas, and even went a step farther. He had promised the Duke to return, he did so, but it was at the head of an army, intending to surprise the duke in Pilsen. Another army, under General Suisse, hastened to Prague to secure that capital in its allegiance, and to defend it against the rebels. Galas, at the same time, announced himself to the different imperial armies as the commander-in-chief, from whom they were henceforth to receive orders. Placards were circulated through all the imperial camps, denouncing the duke and his four confidants and absolving the soldiers from all obedience to him. The example which had been set at Linz was universally followed. Imprecations were showered on the traitor, and he was forsaken by all the armies. At last, when even Piccolomini returned no more, the mist fell from Wallenstein's eyes, and in consternation he awoke from his dream. Yet his faith in the truth of astrology, and in the fidelity of the army, was unshaken. Immediately after the intelligence of Piccolomini's defection, he issued orders that in future no commands were to be obeyed which did not proceed directly from himself, or from Tertsky or Ilo. He prepared in all haste to advance upon Prague, where he intended to throw off the mask and openly to declare against the emperor. All the troops were to assemble before that city, and from thence to pour down with rapidity upon Austria. Duke Bernard, who had joined the conspiracy, was to support the operations of the duke with the Swedish troops, and to effect a diversion upon the Danube. 
Tersky was already upon his march towards Prague, and nothing but the want of horses prevented the duke from following him with the regiments who still adhered faithfully to him. But when, with the most anxious expectation, he awaited the intelligence from Prague, he suddenly received information of the loss of that town, the defection of its generals, the desertion of his troops, the discovery of his whole plot, and the rapid advance of Piccolomini, who was sworn to his destruction. Suddenly and fearfully had all his projects been ruined, all his hopes annihilated. He stood alone, abandoned by all to whom he had been a benefactor, betrayed by all on whom he had depended. But it is under such circumstances that great minds reveal themselves. Though deceived in all his expectations, he refused to abandon one of his designs. He despaired of nothing, so long as life remained. The time was now come when he absolutely required that assistance which he had so often solicited from the Swedes and the Saxons, and when all doubts of the sincerity of his purposes must be dispelled. And now, when Oxenstiern and Arnheim were convinced of the sincerity of his intentions, and were aware of his necessities, they no longer hesitated to embrace the favourable opportunity, and to offer him their protection. On the part of Saxony, the Duke Francis Albert of Saxe-Lauenberg was to join him with four thousand men, and Duke Bernard and the Palatine Christian of Birkenfeld, with six thousand from Sweden, all chosen troops. Wallenstein left Pilsen with Tertsky's regiment and the few who either were or pretended to be faithful to him, and hastened to Egra on the frontiers of the kingdom, in order to be near the upper Palatinate and to facilitate his junction with Duke Bernard. He was not yet informed of the decree by which he was proclaimed a public enemy and traitor. This thunderstroke awaited him at Egra. He still reckoned on the army which General Schafgotsch was preparing for him in Silesia, and flattered himself with the hope that many even of those who had forsaken him would return with the first dawning of success. Even during his flight to Egra, so little humility had he learned from melancholy experience, he was still occupied with the colossal scheme of dethroning the emperor. It was under these circumstances that one of his suite asked leave to offer him his advice. Under the emperor, said he, your highness is certain of being a great and respected noble. With the enemy you are at best but a precarious king. It is unwise to risk certainty for uncertainty. The enemy will avail themselves of your personal influence while the opportunity lasts but you will ever be regarded with suspicion, and they will always be fearful lest you should treat them as you have done the emperor. Return then to your allegiance while there is yet time. And how is that to be done? said Wallenstein, interrupting him. You have forty thousand men-at-arms, rejoined he, meaning ducats, which were stamped with the figure of an armed man. Take them with you, and go straight to the imperial court. Then declare that the steps you have hitherto taken were merely designed to test the fidelity of the emperor's servants, and of distinguishing the loyal from the doubtful. And since most have shown a disposition to revolt, say you are come to warn this imperial majesty against those dangerous men. Thus you will make those appear as traitors who are labouring to represent you as a false villain. At the imperial court a man is sure to be welcome with forty thousand ducats, and Friedland will be again as he was at the first. The advice is good, said Wallenstein, after a pause, but let the devil trust to it. End of part three.